Hello and welcome to the Development Dilemma podcast, a place for the conversations we've been avoiding between expats and locals in the development space. We hear from both sides of the table to tackle development dilemmas and chart how we can do it better. Join me as we start the conversation. Welcome back to the Development Dilemma. After the first episode in which I spoke with Lorraine, a Kenyan, on her perspective of the issues that she's faced and others do in the space, I thought it would be good to bring on someone from the other side of the table. And so in this episode, I speak to Sarah, a close friend of mine who came to Kenya in 2018 as an expat, hoping to make a difference. After six months of being here, she then chose that actually her place was no longer to be in Kenya, and she chose to leave. In this episode with Sarah, we cover her journey to Kenya and the approach she took to observe and learn first, her surprises at the expat bubbles she encountered and found herself in, and the complexities of working for an expat-led NGO, and the issues she saw and had with the kind of condescension that's implicit in a lot of the narrative around skills transfer that we have with respect to Kenyans. Afterwards, we touch on what real impact requires and also why she decided in the end to leave Kenya and the questions that other expats she thinks could ask themselves as well as they stay or as they wish to come. Sarah, really fantastic to have you. Thanks for coming on to The Development Dilemma. And I thought it'd be great for us to touch on why you came to Kenya in the first place and, and how you did so. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be part of this conversation. So I arrived in Kenya in 2018. I was there for about six months working at a startup accelerator that was, you know, kind of a startup itself as well. And I arrived, I, in my undergraduate studies, had been studying international development in the U.S. When it came time to graduation was approaching, I knew that I wanted to live abroad, work abroad. I had been studying in South Africa um, and I was interested in returning to South Africa when I graduated and I was reaching out to folks, both professors and people on LinkedIn and friends and family who had worked there and kind of through a few different people met someone who worked, who led a startup accelerator in Kenya, who went on to become the leader of the organization that I worked at. And um, that was how I ended up in Nairobi. Um, We had a few conversations. My background was in communications and fundraising. You know, he expressed a need for that. And I came there for a three month internship. How I met him was through, you know, connections of like family and board meetings and fundraisers, like very business school-esque connections through both family, friends, and family that led me to conversations with him. And he was a young American himself. Okay, great. And then in terms of you then came to Kenya, what kind of was, you know, what was your approach or thought coming to, to Kenya? Yeah. So I like admittedly, and at the time, I think I knew this to some degree now in retrospect, much more so, but you know, I did not know a lot about Kenya and Nairobi. I'd taken a few classes that touched on Kenyan history and like some post-colonial development, but I didn't have friends there. I, I had not, you know, been there before. The one person I knew was the, the founder of this company and actually our landlord, Jeremy. And those were the two people I knew coming. And I think when I came, my first instinct was like walking is, is how I really get to know a place. So I did a lot of walking. I walked around our neighborhood. I tried to just t- observe, like observing the roads, like the folks I walked by, what people were selling on the streets. And I really tried to come in with an observational perspective, I think, both because I think I recognized I knew very little um, and just out of a genuine like curiosity. And I also was very lucky to have great coworkers who really like welcomed me and 
I spent a lot of time with them getting, you know, asking questions and, and uh, these, these being Kenyan, me, like, Kenyan coworkers. Yes. Yeah. So I had Kenyan coworkers who were like very graciously showed me around the city, took me downtown, like showed me museums, took me to, to eat their favorite foods. And, you know, these ended up becoming close friends who like really welcomed me in the beginning. And that was really my like core squad. And that, that was kind of how my experience started in Nairobi. Okay. I think I have to say it's, it's pretty impressive because I think that active, inquisitive, and I'm here to observe and I recognize my own ignorance is a step which I cannot say I took. Uh, and I, I do wonder how many expats do take such a humble uh, approach, which is fantastic. And so as you kind of embedded yourself and got to know kind of colleagues and friends that were Kenyan, and did you also happen to meet other expats? Yeah, no, I did eventually. But initially it really was my coworkers and my housemates. So I feel like I kind of had this like disjointed, but really interesting, you know, life in terms of operating in these different spaces and always preferring to, like when I could have an experience with someone who is Kenyan, that was always like, that is what I came to Kenya for, like to learn about this lived experience. So I think I kind of like avoided or perhaps unintentionally avoided this kind of more expat way of life for probably about like a month or two, probably about a month or two. And And then, (laughs) and then there was one dinner party that I remember very clearly where it was a dinner party full of expats from most of whom were American. And the person who I knew there initially was American. And it was a night of like discussing Bonnie Vare and beer is my like strongest recollection of it. And I mean, in some ways it was comfortable in the sense that it like felt like I was, you know, at a college gathering. Culturally familiar, I guess, sir. Right. Yeah. Culturally familiar, you know, talking about, yeah, sure. I can talk about types of beer. Sure. But I also was just struck by, like, I, I just had this feeling of where am I? And like, did we all come here to hang out together? Like, is I, I just realized that this had all been kind of happening this whole time and just had this kind of question of like, it just, I found it so interesting that we'd all come from so far and then just like gathered in the same space here and just like kept having these same conversations. It's funny when because we I came yeah. to Kenya. No, it's funny you say that because I, I had a similar moment. I remember going to this apartment and it was, it was I think it was a brunch, just all expats and it was a nice brunch admittedly but yeah then you had like people doing painting on the ground and another kind of group talking about these other topics and world affairs etc and I just remember being a bit struck and yeah wondering like where am I it was just quite jarring to see it and it was like I was just confused yeah I agree that confused was (laughs) an emotion that I felt and and admittedly comfortable in the sense that it was like familiar but that was like part of why it was kind of unnerving and I admittedly like some of my closest friends were like became people who were like not part of this circle but I do think once I kind of was a part of this um or like became aware of who other expats were in Nairobi Nairobi also just feel to shrink in a way because once I started to know people I recognized like that we really did operate in a lot of the same spaces both because I would literally see people and just kind of a recognition through conversation. Like, I mean, the example I think of is like Jay's on a Thursday night, which 
which is a club I in avoided um, I ended up kind of avoiding like the plague but yeah these space like I mean Jay's was just one example of like many similar spaces that were clearly catered to an expat I think another example was like the expat housing group on Facebook where this I kind of became more kind of questioning of it when I was talking to a friend who's Kenyan and she was looking to move and I was like oh well, like I'm in this Facebook group that has like they post apartments all the time and then I kind of went and I like brought it up on my computer and then I was like I kind of had this I was like can I I mean of course I can share it with her but like just had this realization like these apartments were like literally not meant for my friend to see in a sense like because they were tailored to specifically Nairobi expat housing right or UN expat housing yeah Right, exactly. It was kind of like, oh, well, like, I can share this with you. But, you know, I was thinking, like, can she be like, if she applies to be in this Facebook group, will they say no? And just, you know, these are industries built around expats living in certain places, attending certain businesses. And if you just operated in that crowd, you like you didn't have to reflect on that at all, really. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's it's both in locations, but also in the weekend activities of people running away to the coast or the the countless very progressive Nairobi expats that will jump on a flight for a weekend trip to the coast is is rather remarkable. So kind of from these experiences of Bon Iver or, or parties or dinners or activities, what was the sense you had of the lives expats led in Kenya, in Nairobi? I mean, I think I got a sense that, you know, we worked during the day and many people had, you know, Kenyan coworkers who they were close with, who they were like perhaps friends with outside of work. But most of us were also working in organizations led by fellow expats. In most cases, how we got there, I think very few people like just applied to a job that they saw on the internet and then flew across the world to Kenya. So yeah, I got the sense that there was some, you know, attempts at like cultural understanding, but people also were there to, you know, have fun and enjoy themselves, which I think on the face of it isn't, you know, a bad thing per se. But um, if that is your intention, did it take you know, moving to another place in which like your, your positionality there is complete complicated to like, hang out with cool people. And under the auspice of being here to help Kenyans, I think, as you say, like, yes, everyone's entitled to pursue having fun. But it depends how transparent that purpose is. And I feel like often it is under the veil of both being like altruistic and kind and generous and trying to do good that we come. And yet, as you say, it's when you arrive, your life becomes centered around, I think for many of us, around having fun, around doing these weekend trips and hanging out in these expat circles with these expat dinner parties. I agree. And, And like very few people are coming just to work in finance or like to work in, you know, everyone comes to work at these social enterprises, these NGOs, that voice commitment to increasing the quote standard of living in Kenya or increasing employment opportunities in Kenya or, you know, yeah, they're all socially minded organizations. So yeah, there's kind of this contrast between like coming to support a like population that then you kind of distance yourself from once you arrive. Then from your experiences coming on to the next topic, from the conversations we had at our dinner table, it, it was clear that some of these things made you uncomfortable but beyond just the fact that they were here expats having fun there was something deeper that you were troubled with and it'd be great to touch upon you know what were some of those elements that in the end led to you choosing to leave 
there was, you know, this arriving with the, under the guise of helping and then, the, and then distancing oneself and circling oneself with culturally familiar people that on the face of it was just kind of strange. But also, I mean, there was a lot of language around, I mean, both with these organizations and the people in them about like skills transfer. I feel like skills was a word that just like came up quite often about upskilling and like closing the skills gap those skills I mean I also was in kind of the tech bubble so there was a lot of conversation about upskilling for people to be able to succeed in the tech field this was upskilling Kenyans right and mimicking the skills that would like make a Ken allow a Kenyan person to succeed in this tech industry that's going to revolutionize Kenya because apparently Kenya needs to be revolutionized and I think an a time when this became very clear was when it came time to think about the visa process. And, you know, when you're applying for a long-term work visa and I, you know, I was there technically on a tourist visa, which kind of encapsulates all of it. Which is very commonplace, which as you say, it's technically not, it's it's, it's just, no, it's just illegal. Right. right. It's just, yeah, it's illegal. So I was there for those full six months. I was there. I was there illegally. I was there on a tourist visa. I had not gone through the proper procedure to be working in Kenya. And but to apply for an employment visa, you need both to prove it with evidence that this quote skill that this person is bringing cannot be found in the local population, literally does not exist amongst this like country of 50 million people. And you're going to like you have this skill that cannot be found and identifying an apprentice that you will pass these skills on to and quote train upskill to move yourself out of that position. And like, when I saw that, that makes a lot of sense. Like why, you know, if you're interested in development in Kenya, like why would you be, you know, employment of Kenyans is a, would be a primary goal. And it makes sense that in like a nation building project, the government is like, no, we don't want expats here taking jobs. And, you know, and thinking just about my specific role, like I was running social media, doing some grant writing And I mean, I was like an enthusiast. I am an enthusiastic person who works hard, but I didn't have, I don't have these skills that couldn't be found like within our own office, like with my Kenyan coworkers. And I think, I think there is a space one could say in certain areas because people have different expertise across the world to have a genuine knowledge skills transfer and, but being exactly that being a transfer and you have a, whatever, three, four, five year plan by which the company will be run and led by the people who know the area best, which are Kenyans, be that regional expertise or the country at least. And I think that that could make more sense. But the ways in which many such organizations are run is it's just a permanent position run and held generally of top management by these expats. And I had, so I had a conversation with a friend who's Kenyan. We just had a lot of candid conversations around, you know, her asking, why are you here? Me asking, what do you think about me being here? And, you know, I can't speak for her. I can only relate what she said to me, but she spoke about like this skills gap language in particular, just being like, she just used the word ridiculous. Like, it's just ridiculous. And it, you know, this narrative of white people coming to transfer skills to the black people in Kenya. Like there's just so many like undercurrents of like racism and colonialism in just in that narrative itself, just like how that was offensive and degrading. Hearing that perspective was one that like really gave me pause. Like this, this sense that, you know, this was this process being demeaning and degrading was something that I think was not discussed, at least amongst my expat peers. 
so this same friend was telling me stories about her Kenyan friends who are pushed out of organizations by expats who arrived and within a few months, suddenly, you know, I don't know, the funding dried up and they were pushed out of a job. But these were folks getting pushed out by like people who are oftentimes 10 or 20 years younger than them who had just arrived and who were now pushing folks out of jobs, which is just like, I find the ultimate irony that you're pushing Kenyan folks out of jobs. Their goal was probably to like support employment in Kenya. And hearing those stories, um, I think were ones that just were not often like shared or understood amongst the expat community in terms of like what it meant, like how showing up there, even in ways like that people just didn't realize had an impact on the lives of Kenyan people who like, this is, this is actually their life. Like they live here. Uh, it's not like a, just a, like a few month thing or a few year thing. Yeah. I think that's, I think it's really powerful and it's how we as expats grow up with such an image and a belief that, you know, you're going there to help and you're going there to contribute, to pass on your skills, which of course, yeah, as your Kenyan friend rightly pointed out, like it's just a really condescending belief, which perhaps as there are merits to any argument, there is a balance of skills that could be shared, but in both directions, importantly, and there's definitely not an openness I see amongst um, expats generally to recognize that actually as much as there may be skills you have, you can impart and actually you should make that important and key to how you work, which we don't. There actually, there will be other skills that similarly Kenyan can impart on you. And I think that's also never a part of the discussion. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, that definitely was not a part of the discussion that I heard. I didn't meet many folks who were like interested or seemed to be mentored by Kenyan. Yeah, I think that point you made was great. And I think one of the things that to Kenyans might be the most infuriating, and I don't want to speak on their behalf, is this idea that all of their skills in this process, in this visa process, in the ways in which these companies are, you know, are promoted and designed, ignores any skills they may have. Uh, and, and namely, of course, I'll have professional skills, but like a an awareness and knowledge and understanding of the context of the people who, you know, in their country that is just so rich and so deep that has a fundamental impact on the way you do your work. Yes. Yeah. You captured that beautifully. Yeah. It improves the work. Like having people who have a knowledge of the context, the language, the needs, the strengths, the like just a deeper awareness of where you are in the context you're operating in, your solutions will be better suited to the people you are serving. In the US, even we're seeing there's like a more of a, at least in some fields, um, towards lived experience being like very much a job skill. It's like it's on a, um, a job application, it's on a job listing. We are looking for people with lived experience because that will improve the way we do our work, which I think is an idea that's becoming more generally understood in the US. And Kenya, if you have an understanding of the people you serve, that's far deeper than an expat just could ever have by nature of being not from there. Um, and, uh, and namely, namely lived experience, which is not lived in fancy resorts. Right. And I think there's a quote that I love that kind of captures this. That's the people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. I just think it's, it's so true that the people who are who are best suited to be working towards a solution to a problem are those who have experienced it. They are the ones who understand these obstacles better than anyone else. They are the people who have the skills, who can apply their skills to those obstacles in a way that will actually be like coherent in the context that you're working in. And I think recognize that if these are complex problems, then 
any individual narrow expertise is not sufficient. It's mm-hmm. perhaps necessary, but certainly not sufficient. So you may be, you know, a great expert in, on irrigation systems, but if you don't understand well the cultural, like the context within which the community operates in terms of who holds power and who typically has the rights over certain land areas, then you're limited heavily and that intelligence isn't that valued. So as you say, having a genuine lived understanding to some degree of how those people's lives operate is a real skill that we don't value in the process. Right, right. It's a real skill and it improves your work. It improves who you can reach. It improves, like, you know, that person, that irrigation expert could go and reach some people and probably piss off some people too and like have some sort of positive impact. But if you yeah, tie in the actual lived experience of people to like, it just will improve the scale that you can take your work, which I mean, in this like tech world, aren't we all about scale and about like reaching people in mass? And how can you do that without having like a cultural understanding of um, people's day-to-day lives? Which I think as expats, people, many people try to gain that understanding, but there's no, there's just at the end of the day, there's no way you can ever have it to the extent that someone who grew up there lives there, this is their home. I wonder if you've seen any initiatives yourself that have kind of embodied that message and, and what is, you know, a belief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there was one organization in Mathari that I was there with a friend and coworker who grew up in Mathari and he was showing us where he grew up and um, he introduced us to a friend of his who runs a school in Mathari. And this is a community run, community funded school that I just, as I was, you know, speaking to him, realized was like one of the few things I'd seen, like um, organizations I'd seen that was seemed untouched by expat hands. Like this was genuinely community, you know, there was a need. They, the community met this need with this school and it was serving tons of kids. And like when all the expats leave during COVID, like, you know, that's the school that's still running. And I think that was just an, an ex- one example that I was really you know, struck by. I mean, I'm sure there are so many of those examples that just by nature of me being an expat and not from there, I, I'm just not aware of. And I think many people are probably not aware of. That was an example of like a, a solution that was built by the community for the community and was serving the community and not in some like disruptive, like, you know, they weren't like changing the nature of education in Kenya forevermore. It was, you know, meeting... <laughs> people where they were and meeting a need and doing so very effectively. I think what's really powerful from your experience and that comes out, at least from hearing is that you actually had, thanks to Kenyan friends and colleagues who had shared openly, you came, became aware of some of the implicit, explicit harms of, as you say, you're like your very existence there. Was there anything else that came out as well? Yeah, I think another, I mean, just one other kind of example of this um, was when it came to the question of apprenticeship. And so in the company that I worked in, there was, um, so the leader of the company was a white American. um, And on the leadership team, it was about split Kenyan and expat. And there was an, an intern coming from an investment bank in the United States to kind of to build out a funding arm of the organization. And she, there was a conversation happening about her employment visa. She hadn't arrived yet. 
And this is where I first became aware of the kind of apprentice piece of the employment visa, because there was kind of this moment of like, oh, crap, we need to, like, who's going to be the apprentice? We didn't pick the apprentice. And there was this kind of like, oh, like, I guess it could be her. I guess it could be her. Like, and, and it ended up just kind of being this flurry of conversation. And then they picked someone and, you know, she ended up coming. And it was kind of, it wasn't really spoken of again, actually, the fact that she had an apprentice or like who her apprentice was, who was already within the company. But afterwards, I remember talking to the same friend being like, wasn't that, it was just a very strange, like when you actually thought about what was happening, oh, who's the Kenyan person who we're going to like say is going to be taught by the girl who's coming from the United States? When like, there wasn't any actually intentionality, it seemed like to do so. And it was just kind of like, let, like, let's just pick someone. I think that conversation was also just kind of enlightening or just kind of like opened my eyes in terms of, again, just a moment that gave me pause. And at the time, like they just didn't seem to be much, at least amongst like the ex, for example, those leaders around like what the implications of that conversation were and how the person who's been just like slapped on the application as an apprentice might feel <laughs> about that. It's a story which happens in so many cases. I mean, if you have an expat here with a work permit, this is going to be the case. Now, in some cases, perhaps they have a genuine apprentice, but I can even speak to myself. And on my permit, my initial one, I had Lorraine, who was here in the first conversation, and she was my apprentice, and she knows way more than I do and, and still does, and in fact, in some ways has mentored me. So there's this perverse ways in which it's very much seen as like, how can we play the system without really engaging mm-hmm. with like, there might be merits to the ideas and maybe we should engage with it seriously rather than just seen as a hurdle to get along and do our impact as we want because we need right. these to do it. Maybe we should you know engage with these ideas and take it seriously. And it reminds me of a piece you shared with me actually, found very evocative. Yeah, there's this piece called The Reductive Seduction of Other People's Problems, which is already just... A brilliant title. Um, and it's on a um, publication called Bright Mag, which has a lot of great pieces kind of digging into development and to... And it was based um, actually in Kenya with with a lot of Kenyan writers as well. So that also you'll find on, on the Twitter and Instagram. I'll post definitely this article and, and people can find it there. Yes, highly recommend. And it's, you know, it starts off with this anecdote that I is brilliant. I think captures a lot of this where she describes, so there's a young man in Kampala scrolling on his phone. He's a student and he sees this article on mass incarceration in the United States, or I'm kind of riffing off what she says. And he's like, wow, you know, the U S only has 5% of the world's population, 25% of its prison population. That is crazy. And like, you're telling me that black people are five times as likely to be incarcerated. Like that is so unjust. So you know, an affront to human dignity. And I'm, you know, I've got four years of school under my belt. I, I'm a pretty smart guy. I got some friends in the US. I think, I think it's time for me to go and just like figure this out. And I mean, it's laughable because, you know, the first response of someone in America or most people in America would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is so, so complicated. <laughs> like, we, yeah. we wish it was that easy, of course, but this is rooted in, like history. This is rooted in a history, like country that was built on white supremacy. This is rooted in like political understandings of what is crime, who is a criminal. This is like, like there's been people working on this stuff for a long, long time. And well, like you're well-intentioned and it's, it's, it's like an unfounded idea that you can solve this. Um, Cause why would you be able to solve this? And like, it's, it's just rooted in so much context that just as someone who's coming from somewhere else, you wouldn't understand. And I mean, that's in many ways what we do as expats. Like we appear in a place that I do think many, you know, I can say for myself, I showed up definitely having us thinking of these 
issues as maybe simpler than they are in the United States in a way, easier to solve. And when they're rooted in that same complexity of history and culture, and but I don't think we, I, I don't think we see it that way, or, or many people no, do not see it. No, that way. no, we don't. I think that's a great. That's such a nice example of the contrast of how you flip, you can flip these things on their head and you suddenly see how ridiculous it would seem. Yeah. Um, and she kind of ends it with a call to, you know, she basically says that if you're, if you are interested in, in, in working abroad and working on, you know, international development abroad, you, you should be in it for the long haul. Number one, like you should be dedicated to a life's work of understanding a culture that's different from your own. Um, and you should go because you're intrigued by complexity, not simplicity. That should be what drives you, not an interest in simple solutions. It should be an interest in how complex this is going to be. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful way to put it. And it's this need and commitment to the long run. That importance, I think, is manifests itself in different ways. Namely, I think during this COVID period, what we did see immediately as the COVID kind of began in, in February, March, was literally a mass exodus. I mean, it was a, it was a mass migration but mm-hmm. of expats leaving Kenya to return home. And mm-hmm. it was such an interesting position where it was like, if, if we were genuinely committed to our missions and to the ways in which these companies are set up and the ideals they have, then at this point where it's uncertain, we don't know how the world will turn and you are at least a name here to help Kenyans and Kenya, then presumably your duty is to stay, right? And not to flee back right. to your own country. But it was just, that wasn't a question there. And I think if you were committed to the long run, then you would recognize your role in that. And that's a difference. And I understand it's complex family issues. Like it's, it isn't easy, but I think as you were saying, like in terms of those who are here, who will stay here and are most committed to their country, it is Kenyans. Yeah. Those are the people who are not fleeing because this is their home. Like this is where they're from and this is where they will stay, which is like part of, again, a strength for the work. Like those are the people who are now, if you're in any kind of company that's like client facing, those are people who are who in that time when you disappear or not, you are not, but whomever disappeared, those are the people who were still interacting with your customers, who are still interacting with your clients, who like, those are the people who built those relationships and will maintain them. It's, I, it's a skill. It's, or I don't know if skill is the right word, but it's such a strength that I don't think necessarily is reflected on. And I agree that it's like, it's complex, you know, the dynamics that would lead people to leave. But I also, like, I think something that repeatedly struck me was just that there wasn't necessarily a reflection on that. I think that's why, like, having a platform for conversations like this just to, like, reflect just, like, allows you to be more conscious moving forward. It was interesting for me because I saw over the time we, we lived together, kind of you dealing with and processing these problems and concerns you had around what made you uncomfortable. And then you left. So what was it that kind of tipped the scales and in the end made you choose that actually your place wasn't in Kenya, that wasn't the right place for you to be? Yeah, I think it was, I mean, there were many, there were many reasons, um, some of which were logistic related, but I think many of which was just this growing disillusionment with kind of the way that I felt that expats kind of approached work in this space and partially reading this piece, which I feel like put words to a lot of what I've been thinking and reflecting on these conversations with my Kenyan friends that I also had Kenyan friends who said, you're so overthinking this, like just, <laughs> you know, you're overthinking this 
you do great work, you should stay. And I think, but all these things combined to me realizing that if I did stay, I would really want to be in it for the long haul. And I didn't feel I was at a point with my own like professional development either, just like my own, um, what I was capable of that I was ready to stay long-term. Um, and that was the way I would have wanted to stay if I stayed and feeling also being feeling drawn back to community development in the United States and feeling kind of more of a connection, I guess, and more of a, if anything, maybe a responsibility to be doing this work in the United States as someone who's from the United States. So all those combined in a way, eventually I decided to leave. And so how have you found that community development? Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. I think I realized quite quickly that a lot of these dynamics are at play in the United States too. Like in, I mean, different context, but in terms of people entering communities with solutions that are based on little more than, you know, and I've been guilty of this too, like a little more than like evidence and articles and like empirical literature, da, 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 da. And oftentimes just scraping all over solutions that already exist, organizations that already exist, or community organizing that's been ongoing for decades. So I think in that way, these dynamics are like, they rear their head. As long as there are people with privilege and people, you know, privilege and political power, and people who have been historically deprived of that power, I think this dynamic exists. Yeah, in my work now, I I work at a school that's serving young men who've been adjudicated delinquent. So these are kids who essentially live in a juvenile detention center. And I work at the school within it. And I work with students who, the majority of whom are Black and from neighborhoods in D.C. that I am not from, um, who have a lived experience as students who are incarcerated that I will never be able to understand in its complexity. And I think acknowledging that from the get-go and then dedicating the time and the effort to understand that experience, but also just to give as much platform as possible to those students to share that experience and to have a hand in building, you know, in our case, we're building a curriculum. So like actually having a hand in building the curriculum, building the lessons, it leads to a better product. If the class is, you know, it hits home in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. And it, it makes our students feel more like their experiences are valued because they are, and that their experience is critical to the success. So I think, you know, this dynamic doesn't go away. It didn't go away when I came to the United States, but I think the experience in Nairobi gave me just a better, I feel like I was able to approach this differently than I did in Nairobi and just like more humility, more, and more of just like a genuine understanding that like, there's no way that we could do this by ourselves. Like we need, we of course need the perspective and the voice of the students to make something that that serves them well. It really speaks to this need for collaboration. Absolutely. And I think that, again, that's what leads to solutions that are lasting. And I think there's another quote that I love from Lila Watson, who is an Indigenous Australian woman, where she says, if you've come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up in mine, then let us work together. And I think this quote is so thought provoking. And that part of why I love it is because I've known it for years and it's still, it evokes new meaning often for me. But I think it's, it's such a, to many people, a radical idea. And it like, it literally doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Like, what do you mean that? Like, how could the person that I'm helping, how could my well-being be like intertwined with theirs? Like, that's just so like opposite of the ethos of like, I give, you receive. But in order to like create progress, yeah, it requires collaboration. It requires like seeing yourself and your solution as like inextricably linked to the people that you serve. And it's like the ultimate viewing as equals. The idea that your liberation is bound up in someone else's, I think is an idea that would lead to a lot more 
like approaching of work with an understanding of what the other person brings to the table is, as you've said, and just like how necessary that is to the work being done well. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for that, Sarah. It's been really great to touch upon and, and share a little bit of your journey and questions that you asked yourself. And I wonder if there are questions that you have that you think as expats, one should pose just to perhaps elicit some of these conversations. Hmm, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good question. I think I mean, in some ways, I do think like the questions that are required of the visa process are kind of a a good place to start in terms of whatever skill, you know, what are your skills and what are the skills that you are bringing to whatever work you're going to do in Nairobi that could not be found in the local population. And I think just like thinking about that and are there skills that don't exist that you're bringing? If you're not sure, maybe do some research. Like like start to gain some understanding of the context and who's defining these as gaps. And and in terms of like this apprentice piece too, like what that might actually look like. Okay, I'm getting a little far from the question. No, no, I uh, think it's good. And I think as you say, if if then you do identify these skills, and of course you may not be 100% sure, but then there should be a strong commitment to, as you say, it's, it's transfer of skills and, and also learning and coming here with an inquisitive approach first. And I loved, you know, the first episode when you spoke with Lorraine, how she described it as entering like you're entering someone else's home. And I think that that is such a call to the expats who are entering Nairobi or elsewhere in Kenya, you know, entering into someone else's home and, and with, you know, what is the respect and the, you know, the curiosity, respectful curiosity that you bring and just the acknowledging that this is someone else's home. This is not your home <laughs> and you should be grateful that you were welcomed there. And I think just like that fundamental assumption I think that would improve both relationships and the work. And and I think those are questions that I, in retrospect, wished I had maybe asked myself before. And if I were to go again, would ask myself again. Great. Lovely. Well, yeah, I think that leaves the audience with a lot of questions to pose themselves. I think also from my perspective, even if you've left Kenya, you continue to grapple with them in your own place of work, where again, there are differences. It is something I've admired, certainly in the approach you've done and your continued commitment to still try to serve rather than disengage. And I think there's a tendency to perhaps see the complexity and consider it too difficult to try. And you certainly, to me, have embodied a continued kind of commitment and desire to do that. So thank you very much, Sarah. Well, yeah, I appreciate that and would say the same with you, Arnav. And my boss has this saying that I love where she says, sometimes you just need to sit in the mess. And I think that a lot of this work involves sitting in the mess and and just in, in, in that meaning, having difficult conversations and not shying away from them. So I admire that you're leading into these conversations, inviting these conversations. And, you know, I'm excited to hear from more folks, too, about their perspective. And lastly, this podcast is about having conversations. And that's where you can play a great role. So if you have any ideas, any people you think I should speak to, any thoughts on the issues discussed, please do share. You can reach me on Twitter at, at dev underscore dilemma, on Instagram at the development dilemma, and lastly on my email at arnavescapur at gmail.com, all of which you can find in the show notes. I also would entreat you to please share this show with friends, colleagues who work in this space who might find some of these ideas interesting. And lastly, uh, most of all, subscribe. 